This morning's scripture reading is from Esther chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther, and as they were drinking wine on that second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A gallow seventy-five feet high stands by Haman's house. He had it made for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. This is God's word. For the past month and throughout the book of Lent, uh, throughout the season of Lent, we've been looking at the book of Esther. And we've really come to the final part of this narrative because the book of Esther, the book of Esther teaches us how do you live as Christians who have risen to positions of power and wealth? How do you live as Christians who have risen to positions of power and wealth. Because Esther, she used her talents. She used, she's got gifts. And she rose to become queen of the most powerful empire to date. But for a while, she hid her identity. For a while, she hid her culture. And, and she adapted, she over-adapted, rather, to the culture of the Persian Empire. The critics and the scholars, the scholars, they say, Esther sold out. She sacrificed her beliefs. She slept with a man, essentially, because of his wealth and power, and then later married him, essentially, because of his wealth and power. She changed the way she looks. She changed the way she dresses. She changed the way she eats. But a conspiracy arose among her people. Haman, the right-hand man of Xerxes, the king, was an enemy to the Jews. And he came up with an idea to systematically wipe out, annihilate, plunder, annihilate and plunder all the Jews in the empire. And he got signed off. He got signed off by the king. And when this, when this news reached Esther, she began to realize she is in the perfect position. She is in the perfect royal position, only at this moment in time, to be God's instrument of salvation for his people, to end the conspiracy. But... It might cost her life. And so she risks her life to approach the king. And she sets up this banquet and invites the king and Haman to the banquet where she's going to reveal her identity. 
And you have to know, banquets in these ancient times, in these ancient cultures, they were very, very intimate occasions because of the time it took to prepare the food and the occasion. And there was no electricity, so at night it had to be a very, very elaborate occasion to throw a banquet. What's she doing? She's making an appeal to the king, and she's making it by becoming vulnerable before the king, her husband. This meal says, you know, we haven't been together in 30 days. We haven't slept together in 30 days. Let's rekindle her relationship. Let's become intimate again. There are three things we're going to see today in this passage. It's perfect for Easter. It's perfect to end the book of Esther. There's a kneeling down. There's a falling down. And there's an upside down. A kneeling down, a falling down, and an upside down. First, we're going to look at kneeling down. Esther, she carefully puts together her words because she's about to reveal her identity as one of God's people, as a Jewish person. And and in so doing, she's risking her position. She's risking her her status, her wealth, her influence, her security. She's risking her life, essentially, by revealing herself and saying their lives are at stake. Because she's identifying with these people, she's saying my life is every bit as much at stake. Now, Haman, he convinced the king, he manipulated the king to decree death to all the Jews in the Persian Empire to destroy them, wipe them out on one single day. And the king gives Haman, earlier in the book, a signet ring. It means that Haman had full executive power, full executive authority to do what he wanted. What does that mean? Haman had approval. Haman had power. Haman's word was the word of the king. Esther, if you think about it, what Esther is doing, in a society where women were completely, they had no rights, no authoritative power, She comes and she appeals against the king's word. She's appealing against the king's final word, his decree, the public trust that he's built up, his wisdom. Esther is undermining the power of the king here. And so she's got to be careful because her own life is at stake here. But in verses verses 1 to 2, the king adores Esther. That's what we see here. The king adores Esther. The king loves Esther. And he says, what is your petition? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted to you. It will be given to you. In other words, I will do anything to make you happy. And Esther responds in verse 3, if I have found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty. Notice, she doesn't make a demand. She doesn't act entitled. She could have been demanding. She could have acted entitled here. She had the heart of the king. She doesn't assert her authority. Rather, she appeals. She says, you know, you chose me, and if I'm really your chosen queen, then I have your honor and I have your heart. Remember, both Esther and Haman were selected, were chosen by the king. And so she doesn't want to insult the king's wisdom here, but Esther says, if I found favor with you, what she's saying is, I get it. You trust Haman. Haman has your trust But I have your heart, don't I? I have your heart. My life and my heart are at stake. And if I have your heart, that means your life and your heart are at stake too. And so what's your petition? What's your request? Here's my petition. Here's my request. Verses 3 to 4. The petition, grant me my life. The request, spare my people. Now think about this. If the queen has the heart of the king, then any act against the queen is an act against a king, and it's an act against a kingdom. Any violence against a queen 
is violence against a king and against a kingdom. Any conspiracy against a queen is a conspiracy against a king and thus a conspiracy against a kingdom. You're assaulting his home. You're assaulting his family. You're insulting his name. You're assaulting his throne. And the king responds, verse 5, who would dare do such a thing? Who would do this? And here's Haman. (laughs) He's standing there. Esther says, it is this vile Haman. This is the man. She refers to his plan. What it's going to do for the legacy of a king. When people find out that you have plundered from the poor, you've taken from the poor, the people that you've oppressed, through conspiracy and through treachery. And she says, you know, I would have kept quiet. Because I am a woman in those ancient times, I had no rights. I would have kept quiet. But this absolutely justifies disturbing you because I am your treasure. And this is going to be the end of my life and the end of my happiness. But it's going to be the end of your life, the end of your happiness. Until this point, the king had no clue. He did not realize the consequences of the agreement that he made with Haman. But now he starts to make the connection. Now the wheels start to turn. And what does he do? He he leaves. Verses 6 to 7, he's angry, he's enraged, he leaves. And Haman now knows the story is over for him. It's over, and he's terrified. What do we learn from this? Greatness comes through kneeling, kneeling down. Esther's pleading, Esther's appeal. She became great because she lowered herself. She had tremendous power. Why? Because she was vulnerable. She came down. She lowers herself. She absorbs the pain of her people. She absorbs the suffering of her people. Now, Haman's brought low. Why? Haman's brought low because he tried to become great on his own. He was stepping all over people at the cost of their pain, at the cost of their suffering. The gospel teaches that greatness comes through humility. Esther, she petitions the king. She's not asserting her rights. She's not making demands, but she relinquishes her rights. How do you live as a Christian? with wealth and power in a society that's dominated by people who don't share your values. If you look at the transformation of Esther, you see this. In the first half of the book, Esther, she's completely swept away by the world's desires, by the world's values. What she eats, what she wears, who she connects with, who she sleeps with. She says, my body is my own. My wealth is my own. Now, what does she do? She uses her wealth She uses her power, she uses her connections, she uses her beauty, and she uses these things to influence the people that can have the power to make change. She identifies with the suffering of the people around her. She says, I have been chosen for this purpose. My life is not my own. That's what she says. I'm going to identify with the people around me. And if you identify with me because of my wealth, because of my connections, because of my intelligence, because of my beauty, and I identify with them, then you must identify with them. Notice, Esther is not obnoxious about her faith. Esther is not obnoxious about her faith. She's not arrogant. There's a humility. There's a kneeling down. Easter is about the great high king, Jesus Christ, who came down. Easter is about a greater king, a greater king than Xerxes, a more beautiful king than Esther, who lowered himself. John chapter 1 says he came to that which was his own. You know what that means? He identified with his people. He identified with the suffering. He identified with their sinfulness. And he took on the cross, the suffering that we deserved. And therefore, because he's that greater king, he's a king that we can go to. Jesus Christ prayed, Father, 
In a great high priestly prayer, Jesus Christ prays, Father, I want my people to be with me. That's what he prays. You know what that means? I identify with, that pe- with my people. They are my treasure. My life is my people. My, the life of my people are at stake, which means my heart is at stake, which means you, because you adore me, your heart is at stake. That's Jesus Christ. Not at the risk of my life, but at the cost of my life. The meaning of Esther and the meaning of Easter is Jesus Christ is the greater Esther, the greater mediator, speaking on behalf of his people. That's why you can go to Christ. That's why you need to go to Christ. That's why we love to go to Christ. The meaning of Easter is this. We are treasured by God in Christ because Jesus Christ mediated for us, sacrificed his life for us. Then we can kneel. Then we can trust in God's goodness. Then we can trust in his love. You can trust his word. You can pray. You can go to him. You can make a petition. You can appeal. You can go to him. That's the first point, kneeling down. Now, the second point is falling down. There's a kneeling down. There's a falling down. Esther knelt down. Haman, he fell down. Verses 5 through 8, the king, Xerxes, he's caught in a bind because his right-hand man, he realizes, is the conspirator, is the traitor. He's the enemy. And the king is just overwhelmed first because he has no idea. He had no idea who Esther really was, that she was a Jew. And he had no idea who Haman, his best friend, his right-hand man, who he really was. And so he's enraged and he leaves. But Haman, Haman craves power. He craves the approval of the king. And now he realizes, I've lost the approval of the king. And so he knows his life is absolutely over, but his reaction, his reaction is just over the top. And so what does he do? He stays behind. He stays behind to beg Esther for his life. Now, most scholars, most commentators will point out that the etiquette with regards to the king's harem is so strict that it would have been difficult for Haman to even had a conversation with the queen without committing some kind of offense. In fact, you were told in those days that if wherever the king and the queen are, you are to be seven steps, at least seven steps away and apart from the queen. You would never be caught alone with the queen. You would never be caught alone with the queen. And yet here, what do we see? Verses 7 to 8, Haman stays behind and he's alone with the queen. That's the pride of Haman. He's out of control. Sin, our sin says this, you are above the law. You can disregard the law. You are an exception. The law is for people over there, the real rule breakers, the criminals, everyone else but you. You, you're okay. You can't trust anyone else but you. I'm okay. I'm okay. You know what that does? As a result, you have no law. As a result, even though you have authority, you have no law, and you have no self-control. Because you don't have law, you have no self-control. You can't help yourself. You have poor judgment. The Bible is constantly saying here, this is us. It's a warning. Haman is a warning for us. Out of control, no self-control, no sense of law. You can't help yourself. No judgment. And so now Haman's saying, I need to save myself. I need to make right on my own. I need to clear my name. I need to justify myself. It's all he sees. That's pride. The need to clear your name on your own. That's pride. And it owned Haman. And if you think about it, if you look at this, he sacrificed because of this. To save his dignity, he lost his dignity. And he became an embarrassment in front of his country. Because he tried to save himself, Haman lost himself. Pride says, 
this. I need to increase my options, increase my potential, increase my sense of worth. And I have to do this by building. I have to do this by increasing my wealth, increasing my status, increasing my power. And I do that by stepping all over people to get ahead. And so, as a result, you compromise your values, you compromise your relationships. And because you compromise your values and because you compromise your relationships, you know what ends up happening? You end up decreasing your potential, decreasing your options, decreasing yourself, losing your sense of worth. For Haman, this is the end of his life. In verse 8, they cover his face. You know what that means? You only did that to people who were condemned. Why? In ancient cultures, you acted out your sentence. You acted out your sentiments. So to see someone's face was a sign of intimacy. It was a sign of closeness. You're saying, I want to see you. I want to know you. I want to be close to you. You're in. When you cover your face, when you cover someone else's face, you're saying, I don't want to see you. I don't want to know you. I want to forget you. You are cursed. You are out. It's like saying, get out of my face. We say that all the time. No more intimacy. Easter is about Jesus Christ who had the ultimate intimacy with his father, the ultimate relationship with the high king, God himself. But on the cross, what does he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is God has covered his face. God has turned away. I am not seen. I am not known. God has forsaken me. God doesn't want to know me. I am out. I am cursed. I've lost a father. I've lost myself. This is the end of my life. And yet, he never begs for his life. He gives it up. He doesn't die because he's selfish. He dies because he's selfless. The meaning of Esther is this. Jesus Christ sacrificed his dignity and he lost the Father so that we could be intimate with the Father. You know what that means? This is the end of justifying yourself. And this is the end of being snobby. This is the end of snobbishness. Stepping all over people, putting them down to make yourself feel better. This is the death of your ego. Easter marks the end to falling down. Last point is upside down. Haman, he's so evil. Think about this. He was so evil and so arrogant that the people didn't hesitate to give him a taste of his own evil. So in verses 9 to 10, they decide to hang him on the gallows that was intended for Mordecai. Now, that word gallows, very particular word in Hebrew, it's the word eitz. It means tree. Very special word because it's particularly used as a symbol whenever there's a reference to the curse. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, Moses says, he writes, Cursed is anyone, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. To be stuck to a tree, eights, is to be cursed. And the Greek counterpart for that word is cross. His cross. Now think about this. When Haman was pierced, when he was impaled on that tree, that's how they hung people in those days. It was a sort of poetic justice, a great reversal, an upside down of the narrative. The Bible's filled with these reversals. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, famous passage, you have David who encounters Goliath. And we know that Goliath was this giant, the champion of the enemy of the Jews. How does David kill Goliath? It's written that David took Goliath's own sword that was intended for David and he cuts off Goliath's head. So the enemy's greatest weapon 
intended for David was used against himself. In the same way, the death of Haman was done in by the very weapon that was intended for his enemies. His greatest strength, the source of his power, 75 feet high, these gallows, this tree, and yet it was used against him. And this reversal brings about redemption to Esther's people, to God's people. But what about us? Who do we look to? We look to Christ. Jesus Christ was hung on a tree. Jesus Christ was hung on the cross. The ultimate example of the curse. In Gethsemane, Jesus Christ petitioned to the king on behalf of his people, and he says this, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. The cup that Jesus was referring to was the cup of God's wrath, the whole of God's wrath, the curse that would be poured out, the curse of sin that would be poured out, the wrath against the curse of sin. In Gethsemane, Jesus Christ just received a taste, a glimpse of what he would experience on the cross, just a taste of what would be poured out. And it grieved him to the point of death. Jesus Christ is the greater Esther. He is more beautiful than Esther. He is more humble than Esther. He is more powerful than Esther. And yet, he becomes more vulnerable than Esther. Not at the risk, Esther says, at the risk of my life. If I perish, Jesus says, when I perish. When I perish. And yet, this greater Esther becomes like Haman, hung on the gallows, impaled on the cross, pierced on the cross, and why? In your word of encouragement, Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, the apostle Paul writes that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. In other words, Jesus Christ on the cross, on one hand he's saying, I'm a just God. I have to destroy evil. Evil has to be destroyed. There is no exception. Every sin, every injustice, like a cancer that's destroying the world, I will get rid of it. But on the other hand, he says, I am a loving God. I will pay that price with my own life. And so he takes everything that we deserved so that we could have everything that he deserved. That's good news. That's the meaning of the gospel. God is loving because he's just. If he wasn't just, evil wins. If there's even one sin that goes unaccounted for, evil wins. Evil propagates. Evil wins. Evil grows. But it's also why God is just because he's loving. He says, I will pay this once for all. I will never make you pay for it again because I am just. Look at the love of God. Look at the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Look at the beauty of Christ. He says, it is finished on the cross. The debt is paid. The transaction is made. This is the end of guilt. Friends, this is the end of our guilt. This is the end of our shame. That's why we love. That's why we love to go to him. Jesus Christ used Satan's greatest weapon, death, to defeat death. The ultimate reversal. He died, but through his brokenness, he defeated death. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Where, O death, is your victory now? Where, O death, is your sting? You know why? John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's why he came. It was love that hung him on the cross. Easter marks the end 
of you saving yourself, using other people as a way of building your reputation, your status, your security, your power, your approval. You know why? Because if Jesus Christ hung on the cross for you, if he sacrificed his life for you, if he sacrificed his reputation so that you could have the ultimate reputation, if he sacrificed his status so that you could be sons of God. Remember, in the old days, in the ancient times, women had no standing in the social culture. And so when the Apostle Paul writes that you are sons, he's talking to widows. He's talking to orphan girls, orphan daughters. He's saying you, even you, can be sons. Firstborn sons of the Most High God. That makes you a prince. That makes you a princess. That is beauty. That is ultimate beauty. That is ultimate approval. You see that? If you see Jesus Christ sacrificing his security for you so you have a defense, you have an advocate. If you see him sacrificing his power so that you would have power, if you see him sacrificing his approval so that you would have the approval of God, then you can be healed of your pride. You know why? Take forgiveness. Let's look at forgiveness as an example. When you fight, when you're wronged in a great way, in a deep way, your immediate reaction, it is that sinful reaction of our hearts. We immediately want to retaliate. And you retaliate by doing two things. On one hand, what you can do is you can literally just fight back. You gossip about me, I gossip about you. You attack me, I hit you back. You attack me, I attack you. Or you can do that by becoming cold and withdrawn because nothing hurts somebody than when you're cold and withdrawing your relationship. When you fight evil with evil, what wins? Evil wins. Evil wins. And you know why? Because even if you win, even if you get back at them, you become harder, you become corrosive. That evil comes in and corrodes your soul and it spreads like a cancer in your life. And you got to watch your back because if evil wins, they'll come back. Remember Tupac? Some buck that I roughed up way back, coming back after all these years, rat-tat-tat-tat-tat. Well, you don't think I listen to rap? <laughs> That's the way it is, right? But when you see the great reversal, did I not do that right? Did I not say that right? <laughs> but when you see the great reversal taking place for you, you can demonstrate the little reversals in your life, in your own life. You can say, you know, my enemies, they don't have a weapon. The victory and the sting are gone. They don't have a weapon that can ultimately destroy me because the only weapon that can truly ruin me, the only weapon that can truly destroy me has already been destroyed. And so even if I were to die, that will mature me, that will complete me. Do you see that? Easter means the great reversal has been accomplished by Jesus Christ on the cross. Karen Joes, great commentator for the book of Esther, she says the cross, it is the violence of grace. The violence of grace. That will soften you. That was, that's the only thing that could heal you. Evil against evil, it will hurt you. It will destroy you. But the cross will soften you. It will allow you to kneel. It will allow you to become vulnerable. It will allow you to go to God. It will allow you to pray. It will allow you to obey. It will allow you to trust in very, very difficult situations. It will allow you to trust in suffering. It will allow you to give when you don't even have much. That's what it means to be radically generous. Why? Because Jesus Christ tithed his blood and his body. For you what do you have that is yours you see that you will have boldness as a christian who can use his talents and connections and wealth and power for other people for such a time as this
This is our time. That's how we live as Christians in the real world. That's the end of the book of Esther. Simple, right? We're going to be connecting and celebrating the meaning of Esther. We do it by hearing the word. We do it in response to song. But we also get to practice that today in the context of, of course, a banquet. Let's celebrate the risen Christ, the meaning of Easter. He has saved us from our sins. And he is so powerful. Look at the power of Christ. So powerful, even death couldn't hold him down. He is risen. Let's pray.